0: I want to start off this morning um, just praying for some of the stuff that's going on in the world today. It is really wild out there. Um, we just got back from Northern California. There are wildfires burning all up there. Um, of course, the poor people of Haiti have just been just slammed the last few weeks. Now New Orleans is getting hit by, the, by that hurricane Uh, Of course, Afghanistan is just a disaster right now. So there's a lot going on. There's a lot of prayer that's needed. Um, Probably a good time to tell you we are switching our prayer chain over to an app. It's called Echo. And uh, you can find it on our website, hammockstreetchurch.com. If you go to resources, you'll see a prayer request. Just pull that down. You can download the app or you can just submit your prayer request there. Also, we have this little QR code that'll be out under the prayer wall in the lobby. You can check that out too. But it's really helpful in that way. You can pray for the church. You can pray for a lot of things. We we put up a bunch of prayer requests there. So we'll hopefully get used to uh, using that. Why don't we just say a prayer for... um, for the people uh, in uh, New Orleans and Haiti and Afghanistan, so won't you join me? Heavenly Father, uh, this is a tumultuous time in uh, in our history. This is a, a tough time. Lots of things going on in the world. Lots of unsettling things. But God, uh, we know that you're in control. We know that you are sovereign. We know that you have a plan. So we just ask that you give strength. Of will, you give determination, you give peace to the people in New Orleans battling the hurricane, to the people of Haiti trying to clean up after the hurricane or the storm and the earthquake, to the people stuck in Afghanistan who are trying to return home. God, we don't know how it ends. We don't know where the solution comes from, but you do. And so we take comfort in that. We rest in knowing that you have this under control. God, we thank you for the lives you've given us. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. So now formally, I want to welcome everybody here joining us today on site here in the building in lovely Boca Raton online. Thank you for being a part of Hammock Street Church. We, uh, we love having you here. Uh, if you'd like to support our ministry, we'd greatly appreciate that. You can sign up for regular giving on hammockstreetchurch.com, and uh, we promise we will squeeze every penny for the glory of God. Uh, We're in part three of our series that we're calling Recovery Road, and it's really nice to see all of you came back after I preached last two weeks ago because I felt like I was kind of harsh. Like I was a little blunt in my assessment of everybody and assessment of our issues, and, and I know because I've talked to a few of you that I made some people think a little more deeply than they had previously planned on thinking. And it happens sometimes in church. I even made myself uncomfortable uh, after the last time I was up here. So the fact that you came back for more shows how truly spiritual you are. So um, good for you guys, very spiritual people. Anyway, today I have a gift for everybody because you came back. I'm not going to pick on anyone here. Isn't that nice? You're welcome. Yeah. No, we're going to do something much more fun. We're going to pick on other people. Because, because that way you can sit back and enjoy, not being the target. So, uh, just a little gift, little, uh, little fall gift for you. Now, we're doing this series because our nation is in the middle of an unprecedented time. As, as our little prayer this morning shows, this is, this is a wild time in the world. They, they say that division among Americans is, is almost as high as it was during the Civil War. Now, of course, it's hard to check that, but man, it does feel like we're really divided. And because of this division, it stands to reason that the people of Jesus, we need to understand our role in helping to recenter this country around its founding principles, the principles that made us a nation in the first place. You know, the vast majority of nations in the world are centered around an ethnicity or a region or a location, whereas our country is centered around principles. So today we're gonna be discussing how Christians, people who have recognized the sin nature with which we were all born, people who have recognized that human nature that drives us towards selfish sin and requires a savior to rescue and redeem us. How how we've recognized that notwithstanding our inherent sinfulness, Jesus loves us anyway. And if you really think about who you are and what goes through your mind and all the thoughts you have, you should be really thankful that Jesus loves us anyway. And out of this love for us, Jesus made a way for us to be connected to God forever when we'll just turn from our natural self when we'll just recognize who we are and how broken we are and then understanding how Jesus paid for all of our sins when he died on that cross and when he was put into the tomb and when he rose from the dead and he ascended to heaven and he promised to usher in God's kingdom here on earth, that's how we become believers. And once we know that, we should devote our lives to his lordship. And when we've devoted our lives to his lordship, we need to start looking at everything that's going on in our nation through the lens of our faith in Jesus. And we should not be looking at everything that's going on in our nation. We shouldn't have a faith in Jesus that's lensed through our politics, okay? Jesus comes first, not politics. We should be learning to think and speak and act as Christian Americans and not American Christians. Now, I recognize that is a very tough thing to ask because that's not what we're hearing all over the place. And we've seen it's our nature to want to see Jesus as either far left or far right. And I've heard some pretty decent scholars make arguments on both sides, but we want to see him as far left or far right depending on the way we see the world. But of course, and I don't think this is going to shock anyone, Jesus is neither, right? He's not far left. He's not far right. Stop right there. Jesus is neither far left or far right. Jesus is far, far above. He's above all of it. And as a result, as Jesus' people, I think we can rise above all of it as well, all of the division, all of the discord that we're currently experiencing in our lives, we can rise above all that and return to Jesus. And if we do that together with all of our Christians and bro- Christian brothers and sisters all over the country, if we can stay focused on God's kingdom instead of trying in vain to build our own kingdom, we can come together. And if we can come together, not as the black church, not as the white church, not as the Latin church, not as the Orthodox church, not as the progressive church, not as the Catholic church, but as the church church, the ecclesia, the body of Christ, if we can come together that way, God will transform our nation in a mighty way. So today, in a message that we're calling The Credibility Factor we're going to go back to the Hebrew Bible, back to the Old Testament, for really an amazing example of how a nation can recover from any malady when it finds its way back to God. So that's what we'll be talking about today. Won't you pray with me one more time, and then we'll get going. God, thank you for gathering us here today. Thank you for giving us this opportunity to take a look at your word, to understand what you would have us learn from these people who lived so long ago. God, as we continue on this morning, we ask that you would use us, that you would change us, and that you draw us closer in Jesus' name. Amen. So today's story is a fantastic story of leadership, but also a story of God's providence, God's provision. And if we can, as God's people, embrace the lessons that we'll learn in this story, what a difference it would make. Now, The scripture that gets us to the story is quite lengthy, and instead of reading you all that scripture, because I think I'll lose a bunch of people, I'm going to kind of walk you through the background of what happened, so it'll be paraphrased, but this is the story, oh, this is verifiable in the scripture. So I'm going to walk you through the background that leads us up to our verses today, and we are going to start off in Jerusalem. Now, the last time I was up here, we talked about King Nebuchadnezzar. He was the king of the Babylonians. Remember, the Babylonians are where Iraq is located in the modern day. Now, in about 586 BC, 586, 587, Nebuchadnezzar marched his armies into Jerusalem and destroyed the temple. That's the image that you're seeing. He also destroyed the walls of the surrounding city, and he hauled away thousands of prisoners. Remember the story of Daniel and the lion's den? Remember that story? Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, yeah, that took place during this period of time, during this Babylonian captivity. So, roughly 50 years after the sacking of Jerusalem, the power balance shifted. Along came a man named Cyrus, King Cyrus II of Persia. Now, Persia, if you're following along, is modern-day Iran. So you have Iran and Iraq. Hmm, funny how that works, right? So King Cyrus II of Persia, also known as Cyrus the Great, he ruled the Persians, and they defeated the Babylonians. Now, once the Persian Empire ruled by Cyrus established itself, Cyrus determined that he was going to let some of the peoples that were captured by the Babylonians return to their own homelands. So Cyrus issued an edict that permitted about 50,000 Jews to return to their ancestral homeland. Now, if you read the book of Ezra, you can read about that first group that went back under the leadership of a man named Zerubbabel, all right? These are great names, aren't they? All right, so they go back, they got back to Jerusalem, and they began rebuilding the temple that Nebuchadnezzar had destroyed. However, as you might imagine, Israel's economy at that time wasn't very good. It was in shambles, actually. Now, Cyrus reigned for about nine years, and eventually a man named Artaxerxes I ascended to the throne of the Persian Empire. So we have another Iranian king, let's say. Now, King Artaxerxes continued Cyrus's practice of sending captive people back to their homelands. So like many kings, Artaxerxes had a servant who served as his cupbearer. Now, Historically, you're not going to believe this, but historically, a cupbearer was a lot more than a food taster. A cupbearer is actually a high-ranking officer in the royal courts. Because as the job title does suggest, the cupbearer's duty was to pour and serve the drinks. But he got really close with the king. Because of the peril involved for a king, people trying to take him out, people trying to poison him, trying to kill him, the cupbearer became a highly regarded employee. He was, well, trusted. I mean, the king was literally trusting the cupbearer with his life, so the cupbearer developed a pretty good piece of influence over the king. The cupbearer has been greatly valued, and it's been given to only a few people throughout history. Holders of the position of cupbearer, it's said, have been prized for their beauty and even for their modesty, and also for their industriousness and for their courage. So you you had to be a pretty brave person to serve as a cupbearer, because any day could be your last day on the job, right? All right. Artaxerxes' cupbearer was a Babylonian-born Jew, He was born in captivity, so all he knew was captivity. All he knew in his life was the Persian Empire. But given his position, he spent a great deal of time with the king. He spent a great deal of time with Artaxerxes, who was the most powerful person in the world at the time. So this cupbearer, no doubt, picked up some incredible leadership lessons along the way. Now, this cupbearer's name was a guy named Nehemiah. Y'all heard of Nehemiah? Yeah, we've heard of them if you read the Bible a little bit. So here's what happened. When Nehemiah's brother, who had been in Jerusalem, came back to visit Nehemiah in the Persian capital, he arrived and Nehemiah asked him, hey brother, how are things going in Jerusalem? How are things in our homeland? Now, by the way... It's likely Nehemiah had never visited Jerusalem. It's likely he was born under the Persian Empire and that's where he stayed, but he knew who his people were, but it's likely he never had visited Jerusalem before. So anyway, he asked his brother, how are things going over there? And here's what his brother answered him. His brother said, look, Nehemiah, I don't know how to tell you this, but it's worse than it's ever been. The gates are burned down. There are no walls. Everything is out of control. The economy is terrible. Most of the citizens are enslaved. They've had to leverage their property, their houses, their businesses, their crops just to stay alive. They've they've had to use their wives and their children as collateral. Can you imagine using your wife and your child as collateral for a loan? So he said, things are are crazy. Things are bananas. Everything is chaotic. And when Nehemiah got this news, it broke his heart and he began to weep. And he cried out to God and he said to God, God, I want to do something for my people. So he prayed that God would give him favor in the eyes of his boss, in the eyes of the king, and that the king would allow him to leave his responsibilities in the capital city of Persia and go back to Jerusalem to do something for his people. So one day when the king was in a good mood, because it's always best to wait for a good mood before you ask the king or your spouse for a favor. Can I get an amen from the married people in the room? Yeah, okay, there you go. All right, so he went to the king and here's what he said. He said, king, I've just received the news and it's broken my heart and I'd like to ask for a leave of absence to go to Jerusalem and see if I can bring some order back to my native homeland. And Artaxerxes said, all right, you can go. And in fact, he said, I'll make you governor of that province. I'm going to make you governor. I'm going to give you letters for every king or every leader between here and there ordering them that if they stop you, they have to help you and give you anything you need in order to make your journey successful. I'll do all this for you as long as you promise, Nehemiah, that you're going to come back one day and you're going to serve me again. All right, Nehemiah made the deal, supported then by a large entourage. well as materials and money that the king gave him Nehemiah headed for Jerusalem now on the way to Jerusalem he picked up lumber he picked up stone he picked up everything else he would need to help in this rebuilding project of Jerusalem but when Nehemiah arrived in Jerusalem the Jewish people didn't receive him as well as he had hoped they assumed oh great here comes another puppet governor that's just going to add more taxes and take more stuff away from us just like all the other governors But Nehemiah didn't do that. He settled into the city. He established a residence. And then night after night, he went out to survey the city. He went out to look at the broken down walls. And then in Nehemiah 2... Nehemiah gathered the people together and he cast a vision. He cast a compelling vision about their future as a nation. So here's what Nehemiah told his people. He said, we're going to rebuild the walls and we're going to reestablish our credibility with the surrounding nations. And the people were like, yay, we want to do that. They were all in. So as they started working on the walls, Nehemiah began to see what the Jews were up against because this exile had taken a toll. Imagine being away from your home and your city for 50 years, So by the time Nehemiah got back to Jerusalem or arrived in Jerusalem, the men of Judea were so indebted to the people uh, and, uh, and the surrounding nations that they were afraid of forfeiting their land. They couldn't service their debt. They were just destitute. And they stood to lose their children. They stood to lose their wives that they had pledged for collateral. And this caused Nehemiah to realize something. And he thought, if I'm going to help these people get on track, if I'm going to help these people get this wall built, I have to do something about this economy. Does this sound an awful lot like news? Like it really does, right? The problems really haven't changed very much. So here's what happened. Nehemiah, and this is kind of cool. Nehemiah dipping into his own personal wealth, as well as the money that the king had given him, He determined who was indebted to whom, and he began to pay back the debts of his people so that they didn't have to worry anymore about losing everything they had, so they didn't have to worry about losing their families, they'd get back their home, get back their land. He was able to make it so that their children and their families were no longer at risk. So having spent an enormous amount of his personal wealth to buy the people out of slavery, he said to his people, now you... Need to get your crops harvested, and we need to get this wall built. Now, this was very encouraging to the people. Economic pressure was coming off. They were no longer afraid of losing all their stuff, losing all their families, and things began to change. But as things were improving around him, Nehemiah discovered something else, and it really irritated him. It actually incensed him. Just as things were getting better, here's what he realized. He realized that some of the wealthy people in Jerusalem and the surrounding area saw this as a business opportunity, as people will do. They determined that if they could get people to become indebted to them, then Nehemiah would guarantee their loans too. You see what's happening here? All the loans are now guaranteed. Nehemiah's paying everything off. And some of the business people said, well, wait a minute. I can charge somebody a loan, add some interest to it, Nehemiah will pay me, this is a win-win. So Nehemiah's kinsmen began undoing everything that Nehemiah had done to stabilize his community, which really ticked him off. And that's where we pick up the story in the Bible. So if you have a Bible, you're welcome to turn to Nehemiah chapter five, it's in the Old Testament. By the way, let me make a comment about this here real quick. We look at the Old Testament. We learn a lot of principles from the Old Testament. We learn a lot of history from the Old Testament. A lot of our backstory as believers in Jesus, it all comes from the Old Testament. Be very mindful, though, taking the Old Testament and just plopping it right down on modern times. It doesn't work that way. We could talk about that some other time. But we're going to pick up the story in the Bible, Nehemiah chapter 5, verse 6. So, when I heard their outcry and these charges, I was very angry. This is Nehemiah talking. Can you imagine how betrayed? Nehemiah must have felt that he went out of his way to help his countrymen out. And all they did was turn on him so they could get guaranteed loans too. So here's what he did next. I pondered them in my mind. Okay? Throughout the book of Nehemiah, you're going to see this. You'll find Nehemiah facing these difficult circumstances. And instead of just reacting, you'll find Nehemiah pausing pondering. He doesn't react. He pauses. Okay, let me see what's going on here. That's what he does. So that's what he said. I pondered them in my mind, and then I accused the nobles. Who were the nobles? The nobles were just the leftovers from a prior noble family that was there generations before. So here's what he said. I pondered them in my mind. I accused the nobles and officials, and I told them, you are charging your own people interest. What? Kind of weird, right? Now, in the Old Testament, in the Hebrew Bible, when God established the nation of Israel, he told them essentially, as a paraphrase here, he said to Israel, you are going to be a nation that loans people money. You're not going to be a nation that borrows money. You're going to be a nation that owns things, not a nation that borrows things, and you shouldn't charge your own people interest. If you want to charge interest, charge the Gentiles interest, not your own People charging their own people interest, though not a violation of the law, was a violation of Jewish law and custom. So he said, you're charging your own people interest. What does he do? He calls a meeting. So here it is, Nehemiah 5:7. So I called together a large meeting to deal with them. And I said, so Nehemiah gathers up the rich people, he gathers up the nobles along with the power brokers, and here's what he said, and I said, as far as possible, talking about himself and that group that came from Persia, we have brought back our fellow Jews who were sold to the Gentiles. Now you are selling your own people only for them to be sold back to us. In other words, here's what he's saying. He said, I spent my own money to solve this problem. I spent my own money to get these people free so that they could work on the wall. And now you're selling your own people back only so that I have to repurchase them. He didn't like that. So the powerful people had figured out a grift. And they had a good scam going. They knew Nehemiah was going to come along and pay off their debts. And they figured out a way to enrich themselves from Nehemiah's generosity and patriotism. So he was angry. Here's what they said. They didn't say anything. Because that's how mad he was, right? They kept quiet because they could find nothing to say. Yeah, that's how you, you know, when you find your child or even maybe your dog and you accuse them. Hey, what did you do? What do they do? They get real quiet, try to get real small. You know? That's what happened. They kept quiet because they could find nothing to say. So you have a bunch of rich and powerful men, and suddenly they're being challenged by this new guy, this guy was pretty new to town, who didn't really have any leverage other than the fact that he had letters from the king of Persia, who they didn't know, who was really far, far away, but they were speechless. So he continues. So this is verse nine. So I continued. What you're doing is not right. Now, it wasn't illegal. There isn't a specific law in the books, but it was going on for generations and generations. And Nehemiah said to them, listen. You know you're taking unfair advantage of people, don't you? You know that in your heart. You know you're taking advantage of people who might not be as educated as you are. You might be taking advantage of people who are not as wealthy as you are. You're taking unfair advantage of your own people. So I continued, what you're doing is not right. Shouldn't you walk in the fear of our God to avoid the reproach of our Gentile enemies? So he's saying, what do you think people outside this city outside this nation, are going to think of us taking advantage of our own people. It's not a good, look, what's wrong with you knuckleheads? That's pretty much what he's saying. It's a New Living Translation. And so, verse 10, I and my brothers and my men are also lending the people money and grain. It's not that we're aware of the need, but let us stop charging interest. In other words, he's saying, if your own people need something, loan it to them, give it to them, but don't enrich yourself at their expense. Don't take advantage of the disadvantaged people around us. He continues on in verse 11. Give back to them immediately their fields, vineyards, olive groves, houses, and also the interest you are charging them, 1% of the money, grain, and new wine, and olive oil. What's 1%? Basically comes out to about 1% a month, 12% a year. So 12% a year. The interest rates then were higher than they are today. Isn't that crazy? 12% annual interest, and they're going to collect it all from Nehemiah. So here's how they respond. They got called out they were ashamed and embarrassed. Of so verse 12, we'll give it back, they said, and we'll not demand anything more from them. We will do as you say. And Nehemiah looked at them and said, I'm not buying it. I don't believe you guys. So here's what he does. Look at this. Then I summoned the priests and made the nobles and officials take an oath to do what they had promised. I'm not gonna just take your word, I want an oath. I don't trust anybody that would do what you've done, and I don't trust you, so I want some assurances. And then he says this, this is verse 13. I also shook out the folds from my robe. This is a gesture that demonstrates a curse. It's almost like, you know, like that gesture. Enough with you, right? I don't trust you. And he said, in this way, May God shake out of their house and possessions anyone who does not keep his promise. So may such a person be shaken out and emptied. So it's like, if you think you're gonna get away with this, if you double back on this, God will not be pleased. Okay, that's what that meant. Now, we continue on. At this, the whole assembly said, amen, right? Amen, praise the Lord, and the people did as they had promised. Okay, Nehemiah comes in, gives him this speech, guilts him, calls him out, tragedy averted. Now, when you hear a story like that, and, and you try to picture that, like the president or somebody facing down business leaders or, or interna- <clears throat> international leaders or some group that's been taking unfair advantage of poor people or uneducated people or whatever, you, you picture that in your mind, and you just, it's just hard to imagine... A group of high-powered business people saying, yeah, you caught us. You caught us. We'll pay back everything we took with interest. Can, can you imagine that happening in today's world? Remember when the uh, the, the uh, oil spill happened and BP created that disaster? Did they just roll over and say, "Up, oh, you got us. How much money do you need? No, it kind of took a lawsuit, right? But here's the part of the story that you don't know unless you've read Nehemiah before. There was another kind of advantage that Nehemiah had that other governors had also who'd been in this place before. Nehemiah had something beyond the authority he had as a governor. So you have a particular amount of authority if you have a title, but Nehemiah had more than that. And as we learn later on, Nehemiah had something that he'd obtained over the course of about a dozen years. He had something that gave him credibility and influence beyond his authority as a governor. So when he faced this group of people that had taken unfair advantage of the situation, they were shamed. They were shamed into doing the right thing for their nation and for their city. So here's what we find out that Nehemiah had been doing all along. So this is verse 14. Moreover, from the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when I was appointed to be the governor in the land of Judah, until his 32nd year, 12 years, neither I nor my brothers ate the food allotted to the governor. What on earth does that mean? Well, here's what it means it means this As the governor of Judea, as the governor of this area, Nehemiah was entitled to a percentage of all the grain, all the crops all the land and all the wealth, right? Membership has its privileges. In other words, Nehemiah had the opportunity to come in and as the governor say, all right, I'm gonna impose the governor's tax. Remember, I told you, that's what they were worried about. I'm gonna impose the governor's tax. You have to give me a percentage of everything that goes on around here because I'm the governor. Nehemiah said, when I showed up, I decided not to take everything that I was entitled to, okay? Verse 15, but the earlier governors, those preceding me, placed a heavy burden on the people and took 40 shekels of silver from them in addition to food and wine. Their assistants also lorded it over the people. You see what's happening? He's given a position of power and they're thinking, "Woohoo! I am powerful now, do my bidding. That's kind of what was going on. The previous governors were surrounded by people who went out and leveraged that position over other people as well for their own benefit. But out of reverence for God, Nehemiah said, I didn't do that. I didn't act like that. Isn't that kind of cool from a leader? Not because I had to. Not because somebody made me. But out of reverence for God, Nehemiah said, I didn't do that. Instead, I devoted myself to the work on this wall. Now, this is is huge right here. So make sure you get it. Nehemiah said, I came here to do a job. I came here to build this wall, to get this job done, and that's what I'm going to stay focused on. All my men were assembled there for the work. We did not acquire any land. So check this out. The way you enrich yourself in that culture was like today. Whoever owned the land owns the resources. If you own a piece of land and there's oil under it, it's your oil. If you own a piece of land and there's gold in it, there's, it's your gold. You own the resources. And as a wealthy person coming into a very depressed economy, there were a lot of good deals to be had for people who had resources. But Nehemiah told his guys, we're not doing that. We don't purchase land. We don't leverage our power and wealth to become wealthier and more powerful. We're not doing that. And Nehemiah continues in verse 17. Furthermore, 150 Jews and officials ate at my table, as well as those who came to us from the surrounding nations. Each day, one ox, six choice sheep, and some poultry prepared for me. And every 10 days, an abundant supply of wine of all kinds. In spite of all this, I never demanded the food allotted to the governor because the demands were heavy on these people. And then he closes out this section quite well. Here's what he says. Remember me with favor, my God, for all I have done for these people. All right, you got that? Now I'm gonna sum it up. Nehemiah gathered up the wealthy people, the powerful people, looked him in the eyes, and he said this. I've come here to build a wall, and I'm not gonna allow myself or the people to be distracted by wealth, power, entitlement, or opportunity. We're here to build the wall, and that's what we're gonna do. People, the leaders were ashamed. So when Nehemiah stepped up and he demanded of the rich and powerful that they do what was best for the nation, they were shamed into doing it because they were looking at a guy whose words matched his actions at the deepest, most profound level. They were looking at a guy whose words and actions actually cost him, not just the people. Nehemiah had something that went beyond the authority of his position as the governor. Nehemiah had moral authority. Moral authority is this, the credibility you earn by walking your talk. Moral authority is the credibility you earn when people look at you and say, I may not believe the same way he believes or she believes, but there is no doubt in my mind that he believes what he says he believes. I may not agree with the way he or she sees the world, but there is no doubt in my mind that there's consistency between the way that he or she sees and sees the world and the way that he or she acts in the world. We, not, we may not believe everything the same, everything alike, but I'll tell you what, he or she is sincere. They speak the truth. They're absolutely committed to what they say. See, when somebody holds moral authority, there's no hidden motive to worry about. There's no hidden agenda. There's no duplicity. There's no separation between what they say and what they do. And when you encounter somebody who has moral authority, it is more convincing than any power position or any position of authority that they might hold. That moral authority is powerful. Now, The biblical term for having moral authority is called being above reproach. That's what the Bible says. You have to be above reproach. When a person is above reproach, there's this impeccable consistency between what they say and how they live their lives. And when I hear Nehemiah's story, I like to go, I'd like to be that person. Like, wouldn't you like to be that person? Wouldn't you like to be that person with moral authority? Wouldn't you like to be a person who has that kind of moral authority, wouldn't you like to be able to be a person who has that kind of moral authority that can work with other people with moral authority? If you're working with people with moral authority, you could accomplish anything. And I'm going to say something now that should surprise exactly zero people here today. At this moment, in America, there is a terrible shortage of this kind of moral authority. It's not out there. Now, about 25 years ago, our nation was engaged in a a debate that centered around these questions. Is there any relation between a politician's personal life, their finances, their morality, their ethics, is there any relation between a politician's personal life that is relevant to how they perform their job? Should these things be kept separate how they act and how they perform their job, or should they be considered together? And collectively, as Americans, we all said no. If the politician is someone I agree with, no, they shouldn't be considered together. And if the politician is someone I disagree with, no, they shouldn't be kept separate. That's what we do. We gauge our desire for moral authority based on the person we're judging. But since today we're talking about not looking at our faith through the filter of our politics, but rather looking at our politics through the filter of our faith, we're all going to agree with God. God says, yes, it all matters. It matters if there's a difference between what people say publicly and what people do privately. Of course it matters. If we want our national leaders to have influence beyond their title or their position, it has to matter. If we want to get rid of the cynicism that prevails in the political culture, of course, it has to matter. If we want a generation of Americans, if we want the next generation of Americans to grow up with respect for all of the politicians who represent the people, it absolutely matters. It's not too much to ask the people who represent us to be above reproach. To be above reproach in their personal finances. To be above reproach in their personal morality. To be above reproach in their personal ethics. Now, please avoid the temptation here to turn to a Christianese saying and say, but what about grace? What about grace? Give everybody grace. See, God will give you grace. God can forgive everyone. But if a person wants to represent us and our nation, they need to be above reproach. That's what God says. And he doesn't allow room for negotiation. Now think about it. In your life, I suspect you know somebody with moral authority. You've met one person at least. Maybe you know a few. Maybe you've met those people who who walk their talk. You think it's too much to ask our national leaders to be Nehemiahs? It's not unreasonable to say, listen, if you're there to do a job, make the job your priority. We're gonna hold you accountable to make the job your priority, and to live a personal life that is above reproach. You see, recovery begins when moral authority supersedes re-election as the value of choice among our national leaders. We want leaders whose walk matches their talk. We want leaders to value that more than they value re-election. If you get a Republican, Nehemiah, in the room with a Democrat, Nehemiah, in the room with a libertarian, Nehemiah, in the room with an independent, Nehemiah, if you fill the room with Nehemiahs, they'll figure it out. They'll figure out how to solve our problems. And here's why. Because if you get that group of people together that are there to build the wall, that's what they're there for. They won't have hidden agendas. And they won't see the world the same way, of course not. People don't see the world the same way. And they might not share the same values, and that's fair. People don't share the same values. But at least there'll be no duplicity. At least there'll be integrity. And with integrity, the work will get done. It's not that difficult. Leaders with integrity... Working together, we'll be able to to face down the billionaire class without creating some kind of culture war, but they'll also be able to deal with the needs of those who live in poverty without rewarding behaviors that shouldn't be rewarded. It's all very doable. I'd rather vote for people who are on the side, who who are on the other side of me politically, but who are also Nehemiahs, than vote for people on my side of the political divide, if there's duplicity in their lives, if they're not above reproach. Because at the end of the day, that's what it's all about. It's about the integrity of individuals. That's what impacts an individual's decisions. Now, here's how King Solomon summed that up. In Proverbs 11.3, he said this, the integrity of the upright guides them, but the unfaithful, and there's lots of translations there, fools, the simple, the naive, So let's say the unfaithful are destroyed by their duplicity. The integrity of the upright guides them. If we can elect political leaders who have personal and political integrity, there is no limit to what America can accomplish. So, As we wrap up here today, here's what I want to ask. Would you, all of you, begin in a practical way to start working on viewing your politics through the filter of your faith? And would you begin to pray a prayer like this? This isn't magic language. It's just a thought. Pray, God, give us Nehemiahs. Because at the end of the day, it's about me and not about them. It's about we and not about they. See, if the Christians in this nation would say, God, I... I want, we want Nehemiahs in the White House, Nehemiahs in Congress. God, give us men and women whose walk matches their talk, personally, politically, professionally, at every level. God, give us those things. Because if God will answer that prayer, we will be on our way. We will be the nation that continues to be the world's most generous nation. We'll be the nation that continues to impact the world with the gospel. But to get there, we have to look beyond politics. We have to look beyond our own worldviews. We have to look beyond our own prejudices and say, God, please grace us with Nehemiahs. And then God, please give me the courage to stand behind those men and women of integrity. God, I know that you want for our nation only the best. We need more men and women who have more than authority that comes with their positions. We need men and women who have moral authority. Amen? Let me pray for you. Father God, thank you for gathering us together. Thank you for allowing us to come together in a place where we absolutely have different political opinions and social opinions, but we are all united in our love for you. We are all clear that Jesus is our savior. Jesus is the reason that brings us together. Jesus is the person to whom we've given our lives and the person for whom we live them. So God, as we continue on from here, allow us to be those people above reproach, those people with moral integrity, those people whom others look at and say, wow, their their walk sure does mirror their talk. So God, allow us to be this way. Help us to work through our issues so that we can glorify you in all that we do. We love you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.